Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be finishing chapter 3 and going a little bit into chapter 4. And then we'll probably be finishing the book of Colossians the following week. And we'll be starting a new book in the new year. But Colossians chapter 3, very, very challenging passage before us today. It's talking about slaves and masters. So in the original context, it was very, very challenging to the people that received it, and we'll talk about that. But the parallel, excuse me, for us in society today are employees and employers. Everybody here is either an employee or an employer, or maybe both. And so we're going to discuss those relationships today and how these scriptures would relate to us and very, very challenging for us today. And we're finishing up what I think is the most challenging chapter in the whole Bible having to do with our Christian walk, Colossians chapter 3. So we're finishing it today. Let's begin reading in verse 22. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, your word before us is so wonderful. It's the very word of God. And yet it's very challenging. I can't even imagine how radical this sounded in the ears of those who heard it first 2,000 years ago. And yet I think as we apply it to our lives today, we're going to be just as challenged. And so, Lord, we ask for grace. We ask for grace. Thank you that you see us as works in progress. None of us are there yet, but by your grace, we're further along than we were. And you're working in us wonderfully every day to make us the men and women that you have called and ordained us to be. And so, Lord, do that work today. Where we are in error, correct us. Where we need to be trained for righteousness, train us, Lord. Where we need to be instructed, instruct us, Lord. Even where we need to be rebuked, rebuke us. Make us wise servants of you in these last days as we wait for your coming. Lord, we love you. We want to be more like you that we can lead more people to you. So Holy Spirit, come and teach us now for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as I've been mentioning, you guys have got to imagine that when the church in Colossae got this letter some 2,000 years ago, they were absolutely shocked. I mean, this whole chapter, relationally speaking, is groundbreaking stuff. It was really revolutionary at the time, some of these concepts, and still today revolutionary. But at the time, the the way that the New Testament talks about wives and husbands, nobody had ever talked about wives and husbands that way. Nobody had ever given, uh, had ever elevated the status and the role of the female in society like the New Testament did. And nobody had ever humbled the role of the man in loving his wife like Christ loves the church like the New Testament did. These were absolutely revolutionary concepts. And when we studied about parenting, nobody had ever spoken about fathers being very careful not to exasperate their children and not to provoke their children to anger. That just wasn't common in the culture of the day. It was a revolutionary concept when people received the New Testament at that time. 
And so before us today, slaves and masters. Nobody had ever elevated the status of the slave, which was pervasive throughout all the cultures of the day. Nobody had ever elevated the status of the slave to an equal human with the masters, which is what the New Testament does before us. And it's interesting to me that there's more space given to this relationship between slaves and masters than there was allotted for husbands and wives in the same chapter, and as there was for children and parents. And I just imagine that when the slave read this some 2,000 years ago, he was rocked by this truth that we need to know, Christians, today. This truth. God does not always deliver us out of our circumstances, but he will always bring us through our circumstances. We've got to learn that. You see, the important issue for the Christian, as Holly so wonderfully shared a moment ago in her testimony about Thailand, the important thing for the Christian is that you are serving Jesus Christ. Social status and job and employment and all those other things are merely the context for that. She spoke about kids in Thailand that have nothing. Kids who have been sold into slavery and prostitution by their own parents. Now they've been delivered by the grace of Jesus Christ. They've got a very different life than you and I. What matters is not necessarily our place in life and and what priorities we're afforded or we're not afforded. What matters is serving Jesus Christ. The rest is just the context and the details in which we seek to do that. Amen? And it was a very challenging context for the slave in the first century of the Roman Empire. Because understand that the slave at that time was not considered a person. They were considered to be a thing. And as such, they were treated as things in a very inhumane way. Uh, Augustus, the Caesar of Nero, the, the leader of Rome, he really set the tone on one occasion where one of his slaves accidentally killed one of his pet quails. And so what Caesar did was had the man hung by his toes until his head filled with blood and he suffocated in it. He set the tone for the nation. He killed a bird. Well, a slave is no important than a bird. Take his life at his command. Aristotle, one of the most brilliant minds in Greek culture, affected, uh, uh, affected the Roman Empire to a great degree, wrote this, there could never be friendship between a master and a slave. Never. For the master and the slave have nothing in common. They weren't considered to be on the same level by any degree. The Roman writer Varro, uh, when he was writing on farming, he divided farm tools into three different categories. One was the mute those were tools and vehicles like saws and hoes and you know, tractors, whatever, and yokes and so on and so forth. So there was the mute. There was the inarticulate. Those were animals. They made noises, but they were not articulate. And the third classification of tools, he called the articulate tools. They could speak, but they weren't human. They were tools. These were how the slaves were considered at that time. In fact, it was prevalent in Roman thought that when you went to go acquire a new farm or a piece of property, if it came with slaves, what was wise and prudent for you to do was to throw out the old slaves and let them die in the dump because they were just tools. And old tools were not effective anymore. And if you had an old slave and he fell sick, you wouldn't waste the money to nurse him back to health. You would simply leave him, abandon him at the dump to die. Now very carefully listen. The New Testament speaks into that context astoundingly. Follow me. 
speaks into that context and says in our text, slaves, in all things, obey your masters on earth. I imagine that the jaw of every slave in the church hit the ground until he had a fuller understanding of the concept here. I want you to notice that what the New Testament doesn't tell the slaves to do is to run away or to rebel or to strike or to make demands or to walk off or to sit in or to lie down. None of those things. And so we ask ourselves the question, why didn't the church of that day openly oppose slavery and seek to destroy it? Because it is clearly against Scripture. There's no question about it. That scripture is against slavery. You see, slavery was based on the concept that some people were inferior to others. And scripture teaches the exact opposite. That we were all created equal. Doesn't it say in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so make no mistake about it. Scripture is against slavery. And that slavery was based on some people being inferior. Scripture declares emphatically that all people are created before God. So then, why didn't the church openly come against it? Well, reason with me. Number one. Understand that the church was a minority group in that day and they possessed no political power to even hope to change an institution that was built into, woven into the very fabric of society and government. They were a minority that had no hope, no political means or power by which they could change an institution such as slavery that was so intricately woven into society, culture, and uh, government. Secondly, the purpose of the church was to spread the gospel and save souls. It was not to get involved in social action. Now, I do believe that it is right and good and fine for Christians to be involved in causes of justice and morality, both in the government and in society, but not to the expense of the gospel. The primary mission of the church on earth is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to expand the kingdom and to see souls saved. Social action is fine. But what Jesus told the church to do was to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so that is the work that they engaged in. Their primary call was not to social action. Number three, Had Christianity been branded as an anti-government sect, it would have been greatly hindered in both soul winning and church expansion. You know that the church was already viewed as being subversive in their thought and ideologies. And because of their thought and ideologies, apart from political realities, because of the philosophies that they held and the religious ideals, the church was persecuted tremendously. Hundreds and thousands of Christians were murdered for their faith, were thrown to the lions in Roman theaters, were torn to shreds because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They were already viewed as subversive in religion and subversive in thought. Had they been viewed as subversive in social settings, in government, as an anti-government sect, it would have greatly hindered soul winning and uh, expansion of the church. And fourthly, we need to understand that at that time, over half of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. 
There were so many slaves in the Roman Empire that it was forbidden for slaves to wear distinctive clothing. Because then when they were in the marketplace, they would see that quite often they outnumbered free citizens. If they had a distinctive bit of clothing, they look around, they say, well, what are we doing? We could take these guys easily. And because there were so many slaves, it was forbidden. They had to blend in with the free people in public places. And so given that context, what would it look like if the New Testament was calling slaves to disobedience and rebellion? I'll tell you what it would look like. It would look like chaos in the Roman Empire. And chaos is never representative of the heart of God or the design of God. You see, God is a God of order. And Jesus Christ submitted himself to a perverse political system and he submitted himself to wicked men even to the point of death on the cross. He submitted himself to those things. And so rebellion never represents the heart of Jesus Christ. It doesn't represent the heart of Jesus Christ and that was not the prescription for the slave from the New Testament to encourage chaos and rebellion. We know that later on, the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian. And things changed. And, and, and then uh, it, it became more open for the church. And that's when the church came out from neath underground and began to build church buildings and everything changed. But you see, that didn't happen because of subversion in the political setting. That didn't happen because of rebellion. That happened because of the love of Jesus Christ and the humility of his people. Very different approach and mindset. Here's the thing. The New Testament does not focus on reforming and restructuring human systems. It doesn't because they are never the root or cause of human problems. They're not the root or cause. You see, the issue is always the heart of man. It's not a system. It is the heart of man. And when the heart of man is corrupt, it will, or it, it, when the heart of man is wicked, it will corrupt even the best of systems. But when the heart of man is made righteous by Jesus Christ, it can improve even the worst of systems and the worst of situations. And so what Jesus did is he always dealt with the heart of a man or a woman. Wasn't that his mode of operation? He always dealt with the heart. Think about how Jesus dealt with a prostitute. And he encountered many of them. When Jesus encountered a prostitute, I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't go find a pimp or a brothel to then bust. He didn't go and appeal to the Roman governing authorities to make prostitution illegal. He didn't do any of those things. What he did was love the woman. And he loved her in such a way that it transformed her heart and her life. And then he said to her, didn't he, go and sin no more. You see, and that delivered her from slavery in a way that social action never could have. Delivered her from prostitution in a way that just busting a pimp or a brothel, a brothel never would have accomplished. Dealing with the heart of men and women is the business of Jesus Christ. And the Lord knows that when the heart of a person is set free, the flesh will follow. And history shows that. It's Christian principles that led to the abolishment of slavery in this country. Now, slavery is still prevalent in many cultures around the world, and that's horrific and that's heartbreaking. But in other places in the world, it was the implication 
or the implementation, excuse me, of Christian principles that led to slavery being abolished. And what's most important is that when the heart is set free, the person is set free regardless of circumstances. Read with me from the PowerPoint what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, What matters most is keeping the commandments of God. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called, called to salvation. Whatever, you know, however you're living when you were saved, the condition that you were in, employment or whatever. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. He's saying that because you've been set free in the heart. You've been set free in the spirit. You become a citizen of the king. Don't worry about it. But then he goes on to say, but if you're able also to become free, rather do that. Obviously not condoning slavery. He says, if you're able to get free, that is wonderful, then become free. But don't worry about it. That's not the ultimate thing in life. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. You were bought with a price. You were set free in heart and spirit. You became a citizen of King Jesus. Don't worry about the context here on earth so much. So it's very clear that the teaching in the New Testament does not condone slavery. What it does is it raises the status of a group of people who were previously viewed as subhuman to being equal humans before God, and yet it does so without violence or rebellion. That's brilliant. That's the wisdom of God. And part of the reason that the first century church was so effective is this. These people in different strata and substrata of society were getting saved. And when they would get saved, they begin to go to church. And when they went to church, they realized that they were all one in Christ Jesus. And the divisions were left at the door. They were abandoned. Nobody was defined by those anymore when you came into the kingdom of Christ. And so slaves were getting, free, were getting saved, and, and, and uh, owners were getting saved, and they were coming into the same church. And what might be happening in the church is that you went there as a slave owner, but there was a slave who was preaching that day. And he stood in the place of authority and expounded to you the word of God. Or a slave was a worship leader that day. You see, to be a member of Christ's kingdom, you have to abandon all those superfluous labels at the door, brother. It might be that you went into the church and, and you were a Jew and Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. He was and He is. But the Gentiles have been grafted into those Jewish promises. And it might be that you went to a New Testament church as a Jew and a Gentile was teaching from the Old Testament. You see, in Christ there's neither slave nor free, nor Jew nor Gentile. You'd have to get over your Jewishness and get into the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. Let that Gentile tell you about the Old Testament and how the Messiah is revealed there. Isn't that cool? It might be that you went into church and in Judaism, in the synagogues, men and women were separated. But you came into the church and Paul tells us in the book of Corinthians that women would be prophesying in the church. We read about prophetesses in the book of Acts and they would be given a voice in the church. 
They'd be given places of authority and leadership and they'd have value and meaning and input in the church whereas outside in culture, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law. But you came into the church and she could prophesy the very oracles of God to the whole body. You see, it's glorious what the New Testament church is. And so with that in mind, the power of the gospel and the evidence that hearts were truly set free was made manifest then when people would leave church. And what would happen is that that slave who was teaching the Bible at the church meeting to some of those slave owners would go back to the house and he would take that humble place once again of serving his master. Just like Jesus Christ said of himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And nothing spoke more powerfully the gospel than that. And the woman who may have prophesied in church would go home and be submissive to her husband. And the Gentile who may have expounded on the Old Testament would go then out to coffee, if they had coffee back then, and would talk with the Jew. Explain to me more about the Jewish scriptures. You see that? And they would go back to those places of humility and submission. It's not that they were violated in the church. It's just that there are roles and definitions and there was new freedom and there was this wonderful equality even though it was subset into those roles and the submission authority principle. And it was realities like that that caused the gospel to spread like wildfire throughout the then known world. These things were revolutionary. They had never been heard and they had never been practiced. And when they were taught and practiced, the gospel went forth like wildfire and that would not have happened if the New Testament encouraged rebellion amongst half the population of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire eventually became Christian. You see, what happened was people saw consistency. They saw consistency with what they were hearing in the gospel message. Because religion was nothing new. Religion was much more prevalent in those days than it is now. There were many more sects, many more ideologies, many different religions, all sorts of gods who were prevalent at that time. It meant nothing to hear about a new god. It meant nothing to hear about a new philosophy or ideology or some esoteric wisdom. That meant nothing. And the gospel is brought alongside those things. And the gospel certainly perked ears with the doctrine of grace. But it was when humans saw the gospel in action. When they would see a slave teach a Bible study and then go serve his master with sincerity of heart. It was then that people were converted. And it is the same, listen to me, it is the same realities that need to be functioning in our community today to cause the gospel to spread like wildfire. Because church, they've heard the message. We preached it out on Linden at 102 decibels several weeks ago at the Avocado Festival. They have heard the message. What they need to do is see it. They need to see it. They're not impressed by the fact that we all gather here on Sunday, hundreds of us. What will impress them is what they see on Monday. And what speaks to you and I in these scriptures about slaves and masters is the employee and employer relationship. And that's what we need to think about. Now, studies show that most people spend 70% of their waking time at work. 70% 
of their waking time at work. Some people less. God bless you. Some people way more. God have mercy on us. But your average person spends about 70% of their waking hours. Now, by way of just pure logic, if our faith is going to impact the world, it has got to be made manifest at work. You understand that? Otherwise, 70% of your waking hours, which is when you'd be, you know, manifesting the life of Jesus Christ, are just out to lunch because you don't practice it at work. Well, the other 30%, what are you doing? Well, you're hanging out with your wives and kids or friends or dirt biking or surfing or, or studying or, or whatever you do. And so really, if you break life down into its core components, the number one place where your Christianity needs to be real is in the workplace. As far as time allotment, it's got to start at home with your heart and your family. It's most important. But as far as time allotment and impactfulness on a broader scale, it's got to be happening in the workplace. If we're not living out our Christianity in the workplace, then we're not living out our Christianity. Period. You're not doing it. It's not happening in the workplace. Now, I'm not talking about preaching the gospel. I'm talking about living the gospel. You understand? That's what people need to do is they need to see it. Think about the workplace and the ministry of Jesus Christ. These are some astounding facts here. These blew me away. The workplace was the focus of Jesus' ministry. Of Jesus' 132 public appearances in the New Testament, 122 of them were in the marketplace. Of the 52 parables Jesus told, 45 of them had a workplace context. Of 40 divine interventions recorded in Acts, 39 of those were in the marketplace. Jesus spent his adult life as a carpenter in the workplace until the age of 30, and then he started a preaching ministry in the workplace. 54% of Jesus' reported teaching ministry arose out of issues posed by others in the scope of daily life experience. And looking at the Bible as a whole, work in its different forms is mentioned more than 800 times in the Bible. More than all the words used to express worship, music, praise, and singing combined. That's astounding, isn't it? You know what else is mentioned 800 times in the Bible? Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a big deal, brother. That's a big deal. 800 times. And work. Some 800 times in the Bible. Dallas Willard says this in his book, The Spirit of Discipline. He says, listen, this is great. Listen very closely. There is truly no division between sacred and secular except that which we have created. And that is why the division of the legitimate roles and functions of human life into the sacred and secular does incalculable damage to our individual lives and the cause of Jesus Christ. Holy people must stop going into church work as their natural course of action and take up holy orders in farming, industry, law, education, banking, and journalism with the same zeal previously given to evangelism or to pastoral and missionary work. He's saying essentially all of you are in the ministry full time. You just have different contexts. And you get your paycheck from other people. My paycheck says Reality Carpinteria on it. I'm in full-time ministry. Your paycheck may say Raytheon in it. You're in full-time ministry. It may say Channel Island Surfboards. You're in full-time ministry. 
It may say Esau's on it. You're in full-time ministry. It's just the Lord has allowed that you get your paycheck from a different place other than to be a burden on the local body. Another quote here from a man named Doug Spada. He says, The workplace is where a majority of a church congregation spends a majority of their time interacting with a majority of the unchurched world. The church on Monday is the evidence that the church on Sunday is real. That's good. You know what's horrible? This is horrible. When it comes to the workplace, you need to realize that you may be the only Bible that somebody ever reads that works with you. You may be the only Bible that they ever read. Now, that's horrible because I know us. <laughs> but that's wonderful because there's more for us in the life of Christ. He's transforming us. He's conforming us into his image. And the Holy Spirit is the one that does the work. And if we will just submit ourselves to God and commit ourselves to some spiritual disciplines, and be faithful to follow, he will so transform your life that the Bible that people read in the way that you live communicates very clearly the gospel of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. But I really think we've got to be mindful of the fact that your life may be the only Bible that some people ever pick up. All they may ever learn about the Lord will be from what they get when they watch you and I. Oh, gosh. Now the Lord is good and he's faithful and he's bigger than our mistakes, amen? And ultimately, no one's salvation depends upon you and I. It is the Lord who saves. But he's brought us into his work. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, we are fellow workers with Christ Jesus. He's brought us into his work. He's invited us in. He has anointed and ordained that we would be his ambassadors and his representatives. So there were two commands that were given to the slaves or to employees for you and I. Number one, we saw in our text, they must obey their masters in all things. And number two, they must do their work for the Lord. Verse 22 said that what they ought to do is obey their masters in all things. Now, it doesn't make any difference for them, nor does it make any difference for us, whether their masters were Christians or not. We saw the same thing with the roles of wives and husbands. We saw that in 1 Peter chapter 3, the verse 3 verses, that the prescription for a wife whose husband was either a non-believer or is being disobedient to the word, the prescription for her, the modus operandi, what she was to do was to just obey the Lord very closely and submit as unto the Lord to her husband. And in that context, it would invite the work of the Holy Spirit in there and the Holy Spirit would start to work. So her responsibilities were separate and distinct from whether or not her husband was performing correctly or was even a Christian. And so it is with you and I. And so it was with the slaves. They were to do obediently their work in all things, whether their master was a Christian or not. That wasn't the point. And they were to do it not with just eye service. We read there in Colossians 3.22. Eye service, which means to please men. But they were to do it with sincerity of heart so as to please the Lord. That phrase translated sincerity of heart, it means from the soul. Now this is very challenging stuff because very few of us are like this. But they were to do their work from the soul. 
with a fervency, with a sincerity. Now, the only thing that frees us to do that is that we're doing it for the Lord. Amen? We can't really necessarily do that just for the employer, which is why it says, do it for the Lord, which means it becomes our act of adoration unto God. When we do our job, whatever it is in the world, whatever your job is, when you do it with sincerity of heart, from the soul, the Lord God Almighty receives it as an act of worship. That's what the Bible says. You do it as unto the Lord, not for men, but for the Lord. And you know what's wonderful about that? Is there's a lot of things that I can't do for a lot of men. But I'll do anything for my Jesus. And what's even greater about that is Jesus never asks us to do anything he's not willing to empower us to do. And so when we think about our own jobs and doing them as unto the Lord and with sincerity of heart and from the soul, there is available to you and I the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We could come and say, Lord, this is hard for me. I don't even like my job. I don't even like my boss. And so we just say, God, empower me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, fill me with your Spirit today. Because this is not normal living, people. It is my opinion that this is the hardest chapter in the entire Bible for Christian living. And we're at the end of it. And it's ending with a bang. This is not easy stuff. This is not natural living. This doesn't make sense to the secular mind. This is supernatural, unordinary, God-ordained, Holy Spirit-empowered living. And church, this is what we're called to. And so we're to do our jobs with singleness of heart, which means literally without a fold in the heart. It denotes that everything is seen and there's no misdeed or faulty motive hidden behind deceit. We don't sweep things under the carpet. We don't cut corners when it comes to our employment. We don't lie on our time cards. We don't take things that don't belong to us. We don't extend discounts to our friends unless our employers allow us to do that. It's with sincerity of heart, with singleness of heart, without a fold, without deceit, without misdeed, without any ill motives. It is the opposite of double dealing and hypocrisy. Man, that's a high standard. But aren't you glad that the Bible sets for us a high standard? Aren't you glad that it's not like the rest of the world? Because the rest of the world says, hey, you've got to get yours and do it however. Aren't you glad that the Bible's different? I mean, I didn't like my old life. I'm so glad to be called out of the old life. I'm so glad to be called out of stealing. I'm so glad to be called out of being self-absorbed and always wanting to cut quarters and having ill motives and hidden motives and hidden agendas. I'm so glad to be free from those things in Christ Jesus. Not that any of us are perfect, we're not. But we've been set free from self and sin and there is now the opportunity and the possibility to be like Jesus in the workplace. And that is glorious. Don't disregard these things because they're hard. Pursue after them. Second thing we're told is that we must do our work for the Lord. And we already spoke about that. I got a little ahead of myself there, sorry. But this eliminates the human tendency to do the minimum to get by. That's who I am in the flesh, totally. I'll just do the minimum to get by. And we all know people like that. And if you're just secular and you're not born again, that's normal and that's really expected of you. Just do the minimum to get by. But you see, that's not okay for the Christian. 
We in the world, this is so heavy. I'm so, this is so heavy. We in the world should be the best employees in the whole world. That's the biblical ideal. Now, so often we're not. This, this breaks my heart. I have a, a friend who's a pastor, recently built a church, uh, over $20 million the complex was. Built this huge, awesome church. God is blessing their work there. But when he went to go hire his contractor and all the subcontractors, so on and so forth, he would not hire a Christian contractor or any Christian subs because he had been through a building project before and he had Christians and non-Christians working on the previous building project and the non-Christians did the best job. They worked the hardest, they gave him the best product and he saw that Christians were cutting corners. Whatever the rationale was, Whatever they were thinking, oh, we're working for a Christian or it's a church or whatever it was, the Lord is coming soon. I don't know what it was. <laughs> but I know a church that built a $20 million complex and refused to hire any Christians to do it. That broke my heart when he told me that. Just, just a bad witness. And, you know, I talked to employers who some of their, their worst employees are Christians. And you know, we're Christians because we're dirty, rotten, stinky, scummy sinners. That's why we're Christians. We, we, we recognize that and we say, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. But you see, and, and we use that often. You know what I mean? We use that often as we go, hey man, I'm just a work in progress and I'm a sinner. That's why I came to Jesus Christ. But what about the transforming power of God? What about the new life? What about the fruit of the Spirit? What about the power of the Holy Spirit? You see, we can't ride on that excuse too long. We've got to show the world that what Jesus Christ does is transform lives. And you cannot manufacture that or fake that for more than a few hours. You yourself, Christian, have got to be transformed by seeking after the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a neat motivation given to us here in Colossians 3, verse 24. It says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. This is neat. Those slaves at that time, there was no hope for them to ever have any sort of inheritance. And so when they read this, they said, wait a minute. There was no hope for them to have any sort of inheritance or their children. And here scripture promises when they apply these biblical ideals in their context, there is an inheritance laid up for them and there is a reward for them in heaven, as there is for you and I. The parallel account in Ephesians 6, 7 and 8 says, with goodwill render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So in our work context, it helps us, and I don't think it's a carnal motivation at all. Otherwise, the Bible wouldn't have given it to us. It helps us to know and to understand that there is a reward given to us in heaven for our faithfulness on earth. I, I want to look at the scriptures that speak about it, at least a couple of them. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5, if you would. 2 Corinthians 5. It's back a few books toward the beginning of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 
Let's read verses 9 and 10. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, starting verse 9, Therefore, also we have as our ambition, okay? Christians have as their ambition, whether at home or absent, uh, at home means with the Lord, dead, or absent meaning still here on earth, to be pleasing to Him, the Lord. Look at the rationale, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, the body of Christ, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now listen, as Christians, you and I have been saved from the judgment for sins. Amen? You must know that. When you become a Christian, it is because you come to God and you say, God, I'm a sinner. I repent of my sins. I believe that Jesus Christ paid the price for my sins on the cross. He took the judgment for me. And then he rose to life again to give me newness of life. And so, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins. Lord, I ask you to forgive me according to that. So the judgment for sins is dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ for the Christian. If you refuse the cross of Jesus Christ and you will not humble yourself, confess that you're a sinner and repent and ask the Lord to save you, then you will be judged for your sins. And brother, I'm telling you, it won't be fun. There will be no arguments. And it will not be a weighing of did the good outweigh the bad. The Bible says that according to God's standard, even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Nobody will stand on that day apart from being saved through Jesus Christ. So when you come into the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, you're saved from that judgment. But then there is another judgment for you. It's called here in verse 10, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, often referred to because of the Greek word as the bema seat of Jesus Christ, the bema seat of Jesus Christ. This is a believer's judgment. It will happen after the rapture of the church, when the church is all together in heaven. And there we are judged according to how faithful we were with the resources, the gifts, the talents, the opportunities, and the contexts that the Lord gave us. We will be judged according to our faithfulness or our lack of faithfulness. Now, it's not a judgment for punishment. All punishment was taken by Jesus Christ on the cross for you. It is a judgment for reward. And if we were faithful... With the opportunities the Lord gave us, we will be rewarded accordingly. If we were unfaithful, then there will not be a reward. It's not that you'll miss out on heaven or you'll go to purgatory. The Bible doesn't teach purgatory. It doesn't teach that. But we will be rewarded according to faithfulness. How faithful you were with your resources, your gifts, your talents, your opportunities, and your context. Now turn to 1 Corinthians 3 as it gives us a little more information. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. It says, For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building." Okay, Paul's talking about those who are serving the Lord, we're workers with God, and those that we're serving and ministering to are the field or the building that we labor in. Verse 10, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, 
and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. So, so Paul is one of the primary apostles, laid a foundation. And, and then others will come along and minister on that foundation. You know what I mean? It's like if the Lord should tarry, and someday this church has been around for decades and the original staff is gone now and another staff and lay people and laborers move in and they build on the foundation of what the Lord did through those previous servants. You know, we're building on a foundation of what some servants of the Lord did 30 years ago in Carpinteria. That's what Paul is referring to. And then he says, but let each man be careful how he builds upon it. Verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if a man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, fire denoting uh, judgment. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, loss of the value of those works, but he himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. This is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And if we are building upon the foundation who is Christ Jesus in our life, we're laboring for his kingdom, whatever context it is, whatever you do, then that is, um, as is pictured there, gold and silver and precious stones. In other words, they will endure the judgment. They have eternal value. They were done for the Lord, for the glory of God, and by the power of God. But other things are wood, hay, and stubble. Those are things that were done for selfish motives, carnal ways and means, unto men, or just we just separated from God. We just weren't serving the Lord in those things. All those life labors will just be burnt up in that judgment. You'll be saved, but all those life labors, and what a bummer to labor your whole life in some industry or field and get to heaven into the judgment seat of Christ and present before the Lord, Lord, this is my life work. And in an instant, it's just burnt up. And you enter into glory, and bro, you won't be bummed out. Nobody's crying in heaven. This is heaven, what a chip. I can't believe this is all I have. But the Bible does teach that there are degrees of reward. Just as the Bible teaches that in hell, there's degrees of punishment. Now, you're, rewarding, you're rewarded according to your faithfulness. And, and let me illustrate it like this. Billy Graham has been given the opportunity to lead millions of people to Christ. And generally, he's you know, been faithful with that. But let's say that Billy Graham, really in what the Lord gave him, had the opportunity to lead billions of people to Christ, but he only led millions. Well, then there is a degree of unfaithfulness in this service. There's a degree where he didn't press in, where he wasn't faithful to God. And, and, and let's say then that one of you, what God gave you, was one person to lead to the Lord. Just one person to lead to the Lord. And you led that person to the Lord. That's what the Lord gave you. That was the opportunity. It was your whole life working next to this guy for 25 years in the same cubicle. And what God called you to do was get that man to heaven. And you did it. It may be that when we're all gathered together, and I'll see you there, at the judgment seat of Christ, that Billy Graham goes up and we just go, oh, whoa. And he just crowns, just rewards and blessings from the Lord. 
And then it may be that you go up. And the Lord announces the opportunity, the measure of grace and the gifts that I gave to this child of mine was for him to lead this one person to the Lord. And he did it. And your rewards far outweighed that of Billy Graham. Hypothetically speaking, nothing against Billy Graham. You see, it's according to faithfulness with the opportunity given to you. And so that frees you from comparison. Well, he preaches to hundreds and I just, you know, work next to this one guy. Well, brother, are you preaching to the one guy? You might be more faithful than any other Christian in the world. What are the gifts, talents, resources, context, and opportunity that the Lord has given you? You are responsible for it and you will be judged according to faithfulness, not for punishment, praise the Lord, but for reward. And my heart as your pastor is to see each one of you well rewarded on that day that you would each hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. That we would rejoice together and meet in heaven and say, man, there were some hairy times at Reality Carpentry and we were pretty cheesy, but we served the Lord and we were faithful of what he gave us and now we're just walking in the blessings of God. Isn't that wonderful? It's my heart for you guys and that's the motivation given to us to perform well in the workplace or even if we're slaves according to the New Testament. Now, in verse 25 of of Colossians 3, it says, he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. And the consequences, again, are your life's work or whatever it is having no eternal value. Everything that you poured your life into. I just think it'd be such a drag to get to heaven and we just poured ourselves into these things and we find out, man, it was just a waste. There is no eternal value. There, there was no glory in it. it. It didn't honor Christ. And so in that then, you guys, because our poor service will be judged, I think we just need to be real mindful of what we do at work. And we need to avoid not doing our best. We need to avoid trying to just impress people. We need to avoid external service or eye service. And we really need to serve with sincerity. We need to, as Christians, move away from, oh, the boss is coming, look busy mentality. It doesn't honor Christ. It's not what Christians are called to. And we need to get free from seeking the approval and the applause of men. Because Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Now he said that in the context of money in the Lord, but the principle applies. He said this in Galatians 1.10. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Uh, Paul in Galatians 1.10. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. You see... You've got to choose who you're going to serve. Is it this world system and some business, some dream that you have, some ambition, or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? And if it's the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've got to do your work. I've got to do my job. As if the Lord were going to expect it, inspect it himself at the end of every day, because guess what? He is at the end of this life. He will inspect it. And so 1 Corinthians 10.31 is so simple whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the wisest man in the world, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all your might. Do it with all your might. And the word to the masters, well, in Colossians 4.1, 
very briefly, simply said, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So employers, you are not released from anything. You're to to treat your employees with fairness and with justice. As a Christian, you are to be concerned with their compensation. You're to be concerned with their well-being. You're to be concerned with how their family is, how they're making ends meet, what their working conditions are. You, employer, will be judged with your faithfulness of those people who are your resources as an employer at the judgment seat of Christ. And so we need to be very faithful with that, very Christ-like. And what I love about this passage, and here we're finished, is that in it the Holy Spirit abolishes for Christians the distinction between secular employment and so-called full-time Christian work. It is all ministry, brother. It is all ministry. It's just that the context is different. In the mind of God, there's no difference between the plumber or the preacher. There is no difference between the economist or the evangelist. No difference between the policeman or the pastor, the miner or the missionary. Each one of those must do their work as unto the Lord and for the glory of God. And then in that day, soon and very soon when we see him, there will be reward. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Very challenging to us today. Very challenging. I am very challenged. And Lord, as we prayed in the beginning, we pray now. We just ask for grace. We need grace for these things. Lord, we fall so short in so many areas. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us grace to repent today. Any of us that have been wrong in the way we are employers or employees, you'd bring us to a place of repentance. Not a simple, I'm sorry, but a true change of direction and change of life. Lord, that you give us clean hands and a pure heart this day. You're the God that gives second chances and new life. And so give us new life in this area. Lord, we want to be effective on Monday and thereby prove the validity of Sunday. We want to represent you rightly. Lord God, help us. I encourage you guys today to cry out to the Father to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. If you just say, these things are so far beyond me, I can't even imagine living this way. Just say, God, I need power. I need the person of the Holy Spirit in my life. Holy Spirit, fill me with power to live this way. If you need help today, come up to the prayer team. They'll pray for the baptism of the Spirit for you. There might be some gifts that some of you need to walk in the calling that God has given you. Come and ask for prayer. But the best way to get a handle on these things is just be nearer to Jesus. As we draw near to Him, He draws near to us, the book of James says, and then he just changes us from the inside out. So maybe it's just all too much for you. You know what Jesus said? The Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So if it's just all too much, here's what you ought to do. You ought to come forward and get on your face on the carpet and worship the mighty God of heaven and earth. And when you worship him in spirit and truth, Jesus promised that the Father will come. He will find you. And he will minister to the depth of who you are and accomplish a great work in you today. So let's do that.